Listen to In Proximity, a new podcast from Proximity Media about craft, career, and creativity featuring artists and executives in film, TV, music, podcasts, and more. Like Michael B. Jordan, ta Coates, Tara Duncan, Roman Mars, and more. Their latest episode, now available in video on YouTube, features NBA superstar Stephen Curry and filmmakers Ryan Coogler, Pete Nix, and Eric Payton in a deep dive conversation about movies, basketball, and their new film, Stephen Curry, Underrated. Watch In Proximity now on YouTube or listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Visit Proximity Media to learn more. on the 100th day of the strike. What does it mean to you to be out here today? You know, I thought at the beginning of the strike, by 100 days, we'd be tired, we'd be broken, and that's what you usually expect with the strike. It's a war of attrition. Strikes are never easy, and by this point, usually membership is getting distrustful of leadership, distrustful of each other. This strike, it's not like that. That was Alex O'Keefe from The Bear, a writer from The Bear, out on the picket lines on day 100, talking to our own Elaine Lowe. Hi, Elaine. Hi, we are on day 101 now. Day 101, <laughs> we're taping. I'm Shanna Smith. I'm sitting in as host today for Sean McNulty, who uh, overdid it. He overdosed on earnings calls, is taking the day off. Uh, <laughs> we're joined today by Richard Rushfield and a special guest, Elena Smith, the showrunner and creator of Apple TV's Dickinson, who wrote a piece for us this week with the very dramatic headline, Death Spiral of Hollywood Monopolies, that had lots and lots of people talking. But before we get to Elena, let's start with the latest strike news. Right when we were sitting down, Elaine, breaking news. Breaking news. The AMPTP has reached out and they're going to meet again with the Writers Guild. So take two on this meeting, because as we all know, last Friday's meeting to talk about meeting uh, didn't seem to go particularly well, but apparently it went well enough for everybody to meet again tomorrow. So we'll see what happens when they meet again in Sherman Oaks on a Friday. Always Friday. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mm -hmm. no, no summer Fridays for the Guild and the studios. So, Richard, you have some thoughts about this. I think you were doing a little I told you so moment uh, just a few minutes ago. I I, I was not particularly believing that uh, that that things had totally broken down after the last um, meeting, which was sort of the the narrative on the street. It was um, I, I think as we get closer to the finish line, we will see a lot of, uh, should we say, performative bluster that no, nobody nobody can go back to their sides and say, oh, yeah, we had a great talk. It went, went fine, so had some good things to say. Um, but uh, what they didn't say in that in that statement last week is we're done talking and, and we're never going to speak to each other again. So I I think despite the bluster uh, from from what I've heard, um, they 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 went into the meeting and they gave sort of a revised proposal of what they want and the and and uh carol lombardini took it back to the um to the studios and now they're going to get together again and see what the response was but it's it does i've i've gotten a lot of indications that there's sort of productive talks and they're moving towards an agreement on a lot of levels that could break down what they come up with might not be approved but uh you know, just I would just say be aware as 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 negotiations get towards an agreement, um, the rhetoric gets more heated the closer you get to the finish line. Uh, Elaine, you seem to be you were out of the pickets every day this week. 
Uh, would you agree with Richard's assessment? Listen, I mean, I think the writers on the picket lines only have a certain amount of information, right? And what they're working with right now is we'll just be out here for as long as it takes. That was the resounding thing. I hit up three pickets. I hit up a trifecta of pickets yesterday, Warner Brothers, Disney, and Netflix, three of the most popular picket sites, just to see what the vibe was on day 100. And uh, I, I mean, you know, nobody really has that much intel on the ground there. But uh, again, the, the the sentiment is always, we'll just be out here for as long as we have to. Although I feel like the unofficial deadline that a lot of people are working toward is Labor Day. And like, Richard, you tell me if you feel like that's also sort of the unofficial thing. It's like, I feel like it's sort of an arbitrary milestone, symbolic Labor Day. Uh, but but I think folks are hoping for that. Yeah, I think that 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 seems possible now, especially now that they're meeting. As, uh, last time, once they got back to the table and started talking, it went very, they had an agreement in like a week. So it, it, it can go very quickly once uh, once both sides agree to the to the basics there. I did run into a couple of um, SAG-AFTRA negotiating committee members yesterday at Warner Brothers, and they said that nobody's reached out to them. Of course, they're day 28 now, so a lot uh, you know, shorter into their strike than the WGA, but nobody's reached out to them um, so far. I mean, that's the interesting thing here, that the uh, studios seem to have made the decision um, that they that they wanted to deal with the with the writers first instead of the actors, and the, the assumption was that they hated the writers so much that they would uh, deal with the actors and then come back to them. But that seems not to have been the case. Uh, I did you all catch Billy Porter's remarks this week? Um, that made some news. Uh, he said that he he gave an interview, I believe it was to the Evening Standard in the UK, and he said he has. He ha- has had to sell his house because of the strike. Uh, and he said, I don't know when we're going to go back to work. The life of an artist until you make FU money, which I haven't made yet, is still check to check. So the person who said we're going to starve them out until they have to sell their apartments, he's referencing referencing that deadline story uh, that had an unnamed Hollywood executive. Uh, the porter says, you've already starved me out. Um so, I mean, that is someone expressing the real consequences of even a, even for SAG. Well, I guess he wasn't working before the SAG strike because uh, productions had been shut down. Um, what do you make of that? I mean, he wasn't working for SAG minimum either. So, I mean, it's it's a right. it's a it's a common thing of the universe that. Um, you know, whatever your salary level is, your you your your costs come right up to it, or if not over it. So there's there's few of us in the world that can go very long without uh, having income coming in. Um, and uh, but you know, I I think in general, um, writers and actors uh, of all people are used to kind of itinerant uh, income, and you know, going going for six months without work is not necessarily unusual for them in general um so they are more sort of uh, set to ride this out than than other people might be well one of the things that when we bring elena smith in and i know this is confusing because we have an elaine and an elena today but uh it's just sort of how the strike the tenor of it and uh maybe i'm mistaken but it certainly feels uh different this time around because of all these existential questions it's raised about the industry. But I, I'm just going to 
point out this other quote Billy Porter gave, which was interesting given all the earnings calls this week and uh, the comments the CEOs made uh, that were that were definitely more conciliatory. Um, but Billy Porter, who, by the way, starred in FX's Pose, which is a now Disney production um, with, with the merger way back, uh, he said that he said of Bob Iger's comments that he had made at Sun Valley, the now infamous comments that the strike, the striking writers were unrealistic. Uh, Billy Porter said, I don't have any words for it, but F you, that's not useful. So I've kept my mouth shut. I haven't engaged because I'm so enraged. Um, so it's, um, that's, I, I don't think, and Richard, you were much more involved with this in 2007, eight, were people saying things like that about the CEOs then? It would the the rhetoric was not uh, as focused on the on the the CEOs and their yachts and their intemperate comments and the CEOs were a little more uh, politic, shall we say? <laughs> that uh, didn't didn't go out making statements about um, uh, about uh, how ridiculous uh, people were being, and it, it also wasn't at a time of like general sort of layoffs to start with. So I think the the atmosphere was so heated before this this even began um that there was that 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 there's just real hostility i mean there were there i i don't think in in at the, at the last one there was any great love between the two sides and 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 certainly i think plenty of heated things uh were said and uh, a lot of animosity exchanged but um the 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 vitriol on on the one side and kind of the cluelessness and detachment of the CEOs on the other side has been uh, pretty striking. Uh, just maybe we'll, before we uh, bring in Elena, maybe we'll hear Bob Iger's revised comments about the strikers that he made on uh, the Disney earnings call that was yesterday. And speaking of the content we create, I'd like to say a few words about the ongoing strikes. Nothing is more important to this company than its relationships with the creative community. And that includes actors, writers, animators, directors, and producers. I have deep respect and appreciation for all those who are vital to the extraordinary creative engine that drives this company and our industry. And it is my fervent hope that we quickly find solutions to the issues that have kept us apart these past few months. And I am personally committed to working to achieve this result. That sounded totally spontaneous and off the cuff, didn't it? <laughs> I mean, all the all the CEOs have made comments in the last uh, in the last couple of weeks about how much they want this to end and how much they're feeling the pain. So, if only somebody could do something about it. <laughs> they seem to have got well, but but and right after they do it, they're sit the the writers and studios are sitting back down again. So, uh, I, I, I I that was. It felt like it was just kind of empty uh, rhetoric to get themselves on the right side of it, but maybe it's actually uh, moving the ball. Uh, see, perhaps coordination for once, Could, maybe. Possibly. Um, I mean, we'll see what the we'll see what their counteroffer is. In, in anticipation of having Elena on, who wrote about uh, corporate monopolies this week, I just did a little. Um, a little Wikipedia search, so not too deep. But one of the things that came out uh, that I that I hadn't really thought about, but we should, but but that's obvious, is that Disney remains the only studio that still has the same ownership it had since it founded, 
And when you when you look at the history of Hollywood studios, oh my God, just the buying, the acquiring, the selling, the disappearing, the bankruptcies. And now we're in this place with um, five studios and uh, and at five legacy studios and Apple, Amazon, Netflix. Um, and uh, and Elena's piece this week, um, she wrote about what how that has brought us to this point. And so Elena, hi, welcome. Hi. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, Thanks for being here. Um, Your piece caused quite a stir. Uh, I just want to read what David Simon tweeted about your piece. Um, He said uh, of your piece, this catches our moment. Whenever the captains of an American industry listen to the Wall Street analysts and begin maximizing short-term profits and juking the price per share, they are savaging the future. Um, so Elena, congratulations. You, But you're hearing this talk about an agreement potentially, you know, hopefully about to happen. But how is this, you lay out such greater issues around the entertainment business. So how do you reconcile this as someone who is a member of the WGA? How are you reconciling those two, those two seemingly opposite forces at work? Yeah, um, I, I, I'm a member of the WGA and the DGA, which has been an interesting uh, sort of like hyphenate perspective to uh, watch this this watch and participate in this action. Um, And I definitely think generally to what you guys have been saying, you know, it, it, and and back to Alex O'Keefe at the very beginning, like, I think that there's been this temptation to use the 2007 strike as some kind of playbook to be able to predict what was going to happen with this one. But it's been obvious in so many ways and for so many reasons that the reality on the ground is completely different in 2023 than it was in 2007 for so many reasons, many of which I get at in my piece. Um, but, uh, you know, and, and, and then I think when everyone realized that was probably when SAG went on strike and this became, you know, a historic double strike that, you know, hasn't occurred since 1960. I don't think anyone remembers or usually is typically referring to whatever happened in 1960, except that I think we got health insurance maybe out of that one. Um, But, you know, and, and, and obviously this, this also going on in the context of just a growing labor movement um, across the United States that that we're seeing in so many pockets and, and um, of society right now. And I mean, for me, one of the most exhilarating moments on the picket line, I think I was at Disney and um, some nurses had come out to support us and they were just screaming and, and chanting with such passion. And it was really like the additional boost that we needed to keep taking that long walk around Disney. Um, anyway, so, uh, y- you know, I think, um, while I would absolutely love for there to be an agreement and and in particular in particular for the crew um who you know that's another you know Richard you were saying writers and actors are used potentially more used to being a little bit spotty in our employment and that's certainly true for me I mean I started as a playwright I've like you know I've never been able to predict when I was going to be having an income and when I wasn't um but you know for the below the line crew who have been so valiantly supporting us through this strike and really have made 
a huge difference in shutting down productions, refusing to cross picket lines. Um, you know, that's that's where I think that that we really need to realize what an urgent situation this is. And the CEOs who um, I don't know how much time they've spent on sets, but I would urge them to think about all of the incredibly skilled, incredibly passionate workers who have, you know, been out of work at this point for months. And by the way, it hasn't been that long since the pandemic, which messed everything up beyond belief as well. And was it, I, I think that something somebody said to me that really drove it home is that like the day that the mask mandates went away on set, the day after that was when the strike started. So this has been brutal for the crew. And I, I just want to say that, but um, uh, yeah, so I mean, I, I would I would love to think that we're coming closer to a deal. However, that will not do anything to sort out the issues that I address in my piece, which is this um, ever shrinking, ever consolidating sort of too big to fail set of companies that are vertically integrating and owning um, every piece of the puzzle that goes into the producing, distributing, marketing, exhibiting. Um, you know, own, owning, globally owning of content, uh, what we call content. I don't. Well, Elena, in your, in your piece, you, you do this clever thing because you are a writer where you say, if this were a limited series, um, the, the opening show is about Netflix. And can you just, I, I think much of our audience is familiar, but it's worth restating how Netflix changed the game. Well, I think the funny thing is we've actually had a bunch of limited series that have been about these uh, Silicon Valley, uh, you know, kind of <laughs> boom and bust cycles. So I think we're all pretty familiar with the idea at this point um, that, you know, a, 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 a disruptor comes in fueled by an enormous amount of speculative cash um, that in a zero interest rate environment is looking for assets to hold on to, whether it's crypto, whether it's you know uh, uh, office office spaces, co working office spaces, you know it's it's there. There's been this you know money can't just sit in the bank when it's not earning interest. It needs to go out and find something to own. And so, um, you know what happened is that a a historic spending spree was unleashed in our business where shows and movies and entire uh, you know, brands and networks themselves became the assets. And, and of course, it was all under this Netflix model of the vertically integrated walled garden of so-called content, which I really wish we could get rid of that word and go back to stories, movies, films, TV, you know, art, uh, whatever, entertainment. Entertainment would be better than content. Um, but, uh, you know, so, so, there there was just this switch to this seemingly futuristic model of um you know the 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 subscription based streaming platform that would own every every level of production and deliver it straight to the consumer and once netflix um sort of laid the groundwork for that and got a huge head start in building it all the legacy media companies 
felt they had no choice but to jump in and compete on the same terms. To create platforms, as you said. Right. And right. then I, I love this line from your piece where you wrote, Amazon and Apple joined the money-burning carnival, setting up in-house branding operations disguised as entertainment studios that were really just diversified value adds to the products and bundles that form the core of their massive tech ecosystems. So now these are strong words from someone who had a big show on Apple TV when it launched? Was it big or was it small? I'll okay, never well, know. how about Peabody <laughs> Award winning? Let's okay. say that. So it was it was uh, prestigious. How about that? You know, it's so funny because, I, like I said, I came from theater. And um, theater, uh, in, at least in the off-Broadway sense, is not a functioning marketplace. Um, nobody makes a living as a playwright. And so really the only reward you can get as a playwright is prestige. Accolades. Yep. You can win an award. You can get a good review. But I came to Hollywood because I wanted to make great commercial art. Um, you know, the, the, I wanted to be able to make a living while helping in some way to, you know, move the cultural conversation. That's, that was the great promise and also have fun, you know? Um, and I think that by, by, by keeping the, all the data and metrics and results of all the work that we creators do hidden, it robs us of the ability to understand whether we are succeeding in that proposition. Like it's, it's, I, I have, you know, no matter how much money you do get paid and we all know that it feels to a lot of people like they're not being paid enough, but to others, maybe they're being, it seems like other people are getting a huge amount of money. But the point is that it's all happening in a vacuum. We have no idea whether our work is being appropriately valued and whether it's basically become an art market. Interesting. But so what if you would ask, what if you, what if you asked Apple, what would they, what would they tell you? Do they tell you that's not what creators don't get that information? I never asked Apple. Okay. I, I never asked because I uh, was too busy basically trying to protect my show. Right. Right. Uh, and you, also write in your story, not only do I have no metrics for my own success, I don't even know how Apple would determine those metrics in the first place. I mean, my sense of this would be, at least from Apple TV at the launch, it launched small, it still is one of the smallest streaming services. It doesn't serve them in any way for the public to know that information. And it probably doesn't serve, in their minds, the relationship with the creator. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess I just don't feel that way. I'm not so precious about needing to be protected in that way from, you know, the, the reality of what has happened with the work that I've made. And, you know, I think that my perspective on this is also somewhat uh, unique because I was one of the first four shows on the platform and I really was at Apple. I mean, I sold Dickinson to them two years before they even launched the platform and, um, you know, have spent six years there, you know, as a creator and have watched the whole thing come about. And um, it just felt like I kept waiting for the moment when there would be a kind of like uh, a, a, a like group um, transparent 
communication about, hey, this worked, this didn't. You know what I mean? Like you can tell me if something didn't work. Otherwise, how can I know? You know, it's it's um, it it really it really just became like I felt like I was operating in a void to some extent. And the idea that it would just be about like, oh, isn't it nice that you got to tell your story? Well, sure. But, you know, I, 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 you know, I would like to know if I told that story, how many people around the globe heard it? Well, Richard has written about this a lot, about the feedback loop that has been the basis of Hollywood for a century. Entertainment is about communicating, and it's a relationship between the storytellers and the audience on any level. And I, I, I can't think where in history there's been a time where, where you have the artist cut off from the audience, and there's just this wall put, put between them. I mean, it's them. very so they, funny because my show is about Emily Dickinson, and this is what happened to Emily Dickinson. She sat in a room by herself for her entire life and wrote poems and never knew if anybody ever saw them, and they only saw them after she died. So I, I was also, like, very close with the subject matter of uh, an, of, a, of a, a sort of, like, artist in the dark. Um, but, you know, uh, show's over now. I'd like to write a different type of character and have a different type of experience, so... <laughs> Because of this podcast and knowing you were coming on, I, I actually just Googled the exact definition of a monopoly. And so a monopoly is when one company and its product dominate an entire industry whereby there is little to no competition and consumers must pur- purchase that specific good or service. Um, and you write you write in your piece, and I think this is the important point because this isn't just, you know, the, uh, like whiny writers, right? This is, um, you write in this piece that, than your piece, the monopolistic streaming system, as it turns out, works for nobody in Hollywood, not the execs, not the shareholders, and not the audience. Uh, Even the most successful creators of TV and film are screwed in this arrangement. I mean, probably not Ryan Murphy and Shonda Rhimes. I think they've been the opposite of screwed. Um, But uh, we've seen in in this past week, and Elaine, you can talk about it, the stock prices of these companies. Yeah, I think it's interesting to see what a focus there has been on Wall Street in general this time around, right? Like when you're looking at this in the context of the strike, um, I, I there's so much pressure on subscription growth because we've talked about this before, this growth at all costs model that we've seen all of the streamers from all of the major companies pursue over the last five years. And now it's their shift of profitability. And, and that shift comes as the, the writers and actors are in the middle of this historic strike and essentially saying, like, where are, you know, where's our share of the revenue? Where's our share of the profits? So it's, you know, just sort of an interesting, um, you know, intersection of that there. And, and also sort of relatedly, there's like, you know, to go back to something, Elena, that you were saying earlier about Ayansi, um, it's like there's been such a focus on on labor and the the sentiment around labor this time around where you have, you know, nurses out there on the picket lines. You have, um, you know, teachers. And I just find the rhetoric to be um, it's it's just the rhetoric is just so pro labor in a way that I, I doubt it was the last time around because of all of this cross union solidarity. And I think that really plays into the optics of it. When you're contrasting that to Wall Street, when you're contrasting that to the things that Iger, who up until recently was a beloved character, right, who was basically everybody was basically like Iger, come and save us. 
And now uh, the, 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 you know, it's really turned on him, um, you know, based on his recent comments when he's saying it from his perch in Sun Valley. It's so true. So Elena, you propose something in your piece that, yeah, I mean, if we think it's hard to get an agreement between the writers and the, and the studios right now, this is, you propose something far more ambitious. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, I mean, and I think that my, what I, what I propose is that we need government intervention to break up platform monopolies. And I do, do not think that this is specific to Hollywood. I think that there is a growing awareness across, you know, society right now that um, the big tech companies have grown too powerful and that um, they are, you know, taking over more and more sort of disparate and conflicting aspects of um, what it means to be alive and, uh, uh, you know, kind of gaining way too much power in the process. And it's very interesting because this is actually a very um, bipartisan issue that crosses left and right. You see people on on all ends of the spectrum kind of waking up to this and remembering that in America, we have a tradition of antitrust that, um, you know, says when you're, when, when a company has grown so big that it's actually making, it's actually destroying marketplaces and making them, um, you know, not, not functional and not competitive. You know, another key word in my piece that a lot of people told me they had to look up when they read it was monopsony. Um, so there's monopoly and then there's monopsony. Monopsony is when they're the, the consumer doesn't feel the impact of the rising prices or anything like that, but the um, the workers and the industry on the back end senses that there's become a incredibly limited number of active buyers in um, for whatever is being sold, and um, and and again, like I I guess maybe I um, feel coming out of the theater world i was very sensitive to the i to the the sensation of like a marketplace disappearing right right and um i want to be able to sell what i make i want to be able to i want to i want to have options of where i go because that's how you know that's how you can get a fair price you know and even know what a fair price would be for what you're making um and so there's actually a really simple uh, legislative fix for this. That is something that has been um, uh, instituted in the UK and was responsible for a great boom in independent TV production there, which is something called Terms of Trade, um, where basically it became mandated that every uh, TV network had to have 25% of their productions be licensed from independent producers. So it's not it's not a it's not like oh you can't be vertically integrated at all. You can just be 75% vertically integrated, but you need to have at least a significant portion of what you're distributing on your platform that comes from outside uh sellers and and producers and that's a way to keep a marketplace functional and active. Helena, um, you mentioned in your piece two historic things that happened in Hollywood that I think mm -hmm. many people don't know about. Uh the first one the Paramount Consent Decree. Mm -hmm. So in 1940 the Paramount Consent Decree uh made it 
illegal for studios, what, what had been this sort of autocratic studio system where the, the, the production studios also owned the movie theaters where all of their films were, were exhibited. Um, basically, they broke that up and they said, no, you know, to, the same company can't own both ends of that business. Um, and out of that is really grew a golden age of Hollywood. And then similarly in the 1970s, there was um, the FinCEN rules, which were instituted under Nixon, which said that um, that TV networks in prime time could not uh, could not air solely and exclusively their own in-house content. So um, once again, that kind of like opened the marketplace up and made it healthier and made a lot of people very rich. I mean, that's the other thing. It's like there's there's money being left on the table here, you know, like the fact that that you know nobody is making dvds or blu-rays the fact that you know the audience is not getting to have their say that's the other thing like no the audience isn't getting to like vote with their tickets you know like right right well i think one of the interesting things is that um you know when you talk about how the system doesn't work for anyone we're seeing now uh one of our contributors claire atkinson wrote a piece this week about private equity coming in to buy the broken parts of Hollywood now. And um, particularly, you know, in sort of one of those extraordinary statements when Bob Iger also said, the television business is not core to our business anymore. And um, so you're seeing how that system, I mean, that's a true acknowledgement, I think, among the corporations that this does not, this isn't working. Um, well, and what and what the real purpose of my piece was, was to provide everybody who cares about TV and film with a really concise, um, clear, like sort of basic explainer of how we got into the situation so that we can save it before it's too late. Because, you know, look at other aspects of the culture industry, look at music, look at journalism, look at book publishing. You know, Simon and Schuster just the other day was sold off to a private equity firm. Um, I actually published a book with Simon and Schuster, so I got an email about it. Um, but uh, you know, it, it is it it will it will surprise us how fast this can all disappear. And um, you know, there are many other parts to that story which have to do with outsourcing. AI is a huge part of that story. This, this, you know, whether it's a fantasy or whether it's a reality that that hap, you know, that job, the whole work of creative of human creativity could be outsourced to robots. Um, you know, we will end up in a in a society that no in a in an America that no longer has the capacity, the the industrial capacity to create hit movies and hit shows. And mm -hmm. I don't want to see that happen. I want to I want to make them. I also want to enjoy them. I want to see them. I want to go to Barbie and Oppenheimer and give my ticket and, you know, and have a, a, a good summer weekend, you know? Well, this, this is a, as we wrap up here, I want to point out that Richard wrote about uh, William Friedkin, uh, who passed this week, and he wrote about uh, how he, how three William Friedkins could save Hollywood today. I mean, facetiously, but maybe not so facetiously, because everything has become so bland and so the same. Uh, Richard, well, do you want to just speak to that? Yeah, and I mean, with William Friedkin, you had this this person who was so um, sort of fearless, both on screen and off, and and just so 
fiercely protective of of uh, the medium and the arts and 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 passionate about it and made everything he did so you know even when he made a little basketball movie it was the most important thing since uh, Puccini uh, and it was just this this passionate about it. and now every, everything seems to become so small and so and part of that is losing contact with the audience there um, another part of that though is also is overproduction you know we this is such a tricky moment because we're coming out of again like the biggest spending spree in the history of the business that was all speculative it wasn't based on the real value of any of this content and here's the thing from from the position of the of the creator who made three seasons of a TV show, one entirely during a pandemic, it hasn't gotten any easier to make this stuff. The work is very difficult and very arduous and very all consuming, and you have to bring your heart and your soul to it. The robots aren't there doing it yet. We're still doing it. Um, you know, and and it didn't get any easier to make it, but each of the pieces that got made were wildly less valuable because they existed in this sea of overproduction. And so I don't know. I, I think, you know, this is this is very much uncharted territory. It's a strike in the middle of a contraction, in the middle of, you know, decades of unchecked mergers and consolidations. And it's it's not pretty. It's not pretty. So um William Friedkin, uh yes, we need more William Friedkins, but also William Friedkin was lucky to live at the time that he lived. Yes, uh, that's true. I think, uh, and Richard says this often about artists he admires. If if they brought their project, you know, X whatever to to the studios today, it would get a hard pass. Absolutely. All right. So, Elena, before we wrap up here, before we let you go, what do, how are you going to celebrate if and when the strike ends for for you? Well, I have five year old twins, and they're starting oh kindergarten next week, and so that's kind of the main focus of of my life right now. Um, but uh, yeah, I guess I'll have to I'll have to like you know explain to them that we're not on strike anymore, and so you know they can they can start watching Netflix again without guilt or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> and if I can ask, what what does your Elena was very close with a. Uh, very prominent uh, early social media influencer named Tween Hobo, and uh, wondering wondering if Tween Hobo has any comments on the state of uh, Tween Hobo. Tween Hobo might be setting off to college by now. You know, I don't know, but I have a feeling Tween Hobo is probably like a hardcore member of the DSA, and you know, has been out on those lines supporting, even though she's just a, she's just an influencer. She's not a member of the guild yet, so give it up. <laughs> life on the rails. That's great. I'll now, now uh, note to self, look up tween hobo. <laughs> An important commentator. Okay. Okay. Um, Elena Smith, thank you so much for joining us. That was an amazing piece you wrote. Everyone should please check it out at uh, theankler.com. Remember to subscribe to The Ankler and follow us on the socials at The Ankler um, and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app. Um, Richard, Elaine, uh, we'll see you soon. And uh, Elaine, go out to the pickets and get us all the news. Please subscribe to Strikegeist, um, Elaine's in- incredible free newsletter, uh, to get all the latest on the strike, including the outcome of this meeting, uh, as at least for some of you who are listening, that will come out uh, fairly soon. See you next week. <laughs>